1: California, Florida, and you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for January 14th, episode 2850. This episode is brought to you today by Kentucky Performance Products. We're stepping outside the box a little bit today on Horses in the Morning. This time, Jamie Jennings, regular host of the show, sits down with Monty Roberts for a bit of a fireside chat.
2: So sit back and enjoy.
0: Guess what day it is today? Sunday. No. It's Friday. Friday. This is what it's all about, gentlemen. It's what we train
1: for. Happy Friday.
2: Thank God it's Friday. Well,
0: good God Almighty, this week's been two months long. Lord, I love to hear that Friday at 5 o'clock whistle moan As the moon comes up and the sun goes
2: down, but the juice to
1: Well, thank you all for joining us for a very special episode of Horses in the Morning. Um, we don't—I don't do these on camera, so it is kind of a, a unique situation for me to be sitting here in the stunningly beautiful house in Solvang, California, uh, with Monty. And I really want to thank the family and, and everybody for arranging this at fairly short notice as well to let us sit in here and and pick the brain of the the master and tell a little bit more of his story and um horses in the morning is is a a podcast for those that are listening or watching this on the university horses in the morning is a podcast that you can find on all of your podcast players and if you're listening on horses in the morning MontyRobertsUniversity.com is where you can watch all this on video. So again, thank you everybody for joining us. And thank you, Monty, for letting me pop into your house and, and sit and talk with you.
0: It's not just letting you, it's inviting you to do it. I enjoy your being here.
1: Well, it's a, it's a pleasure. And um, for those who may not know, my husband is actually here with me as well. And he hasn't been here since the first time I came back in 2015. So lots of changes here at the farm. And I went from a, a stranger to seven years later, I feel like part of the family. So it's it's a, an honor to, to, to be able to kind of show him that as well and, and how important this place has become for me.
0: Well, you are part of the family and an important and wonderful part of the family because of the things that you've done to take my concepts and go with them and build them and even improve, I think, some of them. Um, Nobody knows it all, and there are improvements to anything. But uh, you've proven that um, starting in your late 30s, you could take it from there and and, uh, really make an entire change in your life based on the concepts that you learned in that first 10-day visit.
1: Well, it definitely changed my life. So what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is to kind of hear a little bit more of your story. Most of the time when we have you on our podcast is to talk about training and to answer training questions, but I wanted to get a little more personal. We'll still get to the horse, but I wanted to kind of get a little like behind the music, if you will, you know, a little behind the scenes and who is, Monty, on a on a daily basis, not just the, the the horse trainer with magical abilities and talents. So I guess, you know, you've been married to Pat, your wife, for how many years now? Sixty-five test. years. <laughs> Good thing you got that right. <laughs> Perfect. Um I know that was a while ago, a couple days ago. Do you remember how, how you guys met and kind of what you thought about her?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going to school only two days out of a month. And I took the tests there um, in this private school, uh, it's a Catholic school in Salinas, California. And I was in the fourth grade and... Uh, Sister Agnes Patricia spotted me and kind of helped me get through all of this. And Pat was in the third grade. And um, I didn't know Pat in the third grade. I don't know that I saw her when she was in the third grade and I was in the fourth. But her father was in the water business. And I remember he was a well driller and that sort of thing. And I remember that the family came around a few times the first time though, that I really remember seeing Pat and getting to know her at all. She was about 12 and I was 13, Um, and I was still not in school. I went to high school fairly often, but they had a teacher on the road with me, and all through grammar school, I didn't know the kids, but 12 and 13, I would say, and I saw her get out of a Car and walk across to the where the horses were, and I thought, "Whoa, uh, (laughs) that's a special lady." And um, I probably said, "Girl," didn't I? Uh, Twelve and thirteen, and I don't know that she even recognized that I was around, but she seemed quite special, and she she seemed to be have a beauty about her that I was already thinking, "How could we make her?" princess of the California rodeo in Salinas California and uh, later I I helped her with her horsemanship and she ran for that thing I don't even remember how it turned out but she was the best one in it whatever whatever happened but um yeah I I then started to watch as she dated her first boyfriend Bobby bruin <laughs> and uh, I didn't care for Bobby Bruin after that. I don't know. (laughs) I I kept wanting to be closer to her and um, get to know her better. But it wasn't until she was 18, I was 19 before we actually dated. And uh, I don't think it was more than two or three dates till I really thought this is the lady I want to marry someday. And uh, we were married when I was 21 and she was 20. And uh, it's 65 years with three biological children, two girls and a boy, and 47 foster children later. And we've been through the toughest of times, and we've been through the most wonderful times, as life should be, I guess, because the tough times teach you and the good times let you enjoy what you learned. And I've... um, Learned a lot, and we've had a good time.
1: I'm, I'm wondering if... So when you drive into Flag Up Farm, it is one of the most spectacular places, and you detail how you came to acquire this farm pretty extensively in your book, The Man Who Listens to Horses. But I wonder if you could... The first time I came here... I had read that book and it's a pretty fantastic story of how you came to live here at the farm. And I can't say that I 100% was like, I believed it because I love to tell a good story. And I remember sitting at the table and your daughter, Debbie says, remember when we had to evacuate the farm and we had to take the horses and ride away, we rode right up that hill over there. And I said, I can that was real? <laughs> I just couldn't believe that that was a real story. So maybe, do you mind giving us the Reader's Digest version of how this farm came to be? Because it is, if you ha- go read the book, it's amazing, but maybe you could tell everybody.
0: Well, even the book whitewashes everything because uh, people that were promoting the book and publishing the book Knew that there'd be lawsuits if I really told the story the way it was, and um, nobody
1: listens to this. You can tell whatever you want.
0: Well, no, they do listen to it, but most everybody's dead now. That um,
1: you win was, was involved, but
0: yeah, we, we were. I was showing horses, and I had already won um, eleven world championships, and uh, along comes this man uh, from New York who had millions of dollars. He had been living in Santa Barbara area and had property here in this valley where we came to later. Um, I didn't know at the time that he was bipolar. And he had been diagnosed as bipolar in New York and sent to California to get him away from the family business because he caused problems when he was on a downcast. He even caused problems when he was on an upcast because he spent so much money and bought everything he saw. And um, he was on an upcast when he met me. And so he was willing to buy property and wanted me to build the best horse farm in the world. And um, that was in 1964 or so. Um, We started building it in 65 and he was on an upswing all the way through until uh, about 1971. And in 1971, after moving in here with the farm that I had designed and the home that I had designed, uh, we moved in in 66 and started the operation. He wanted racehorses and my whole life then moved to the thoroughbred racing industry. And the way we went, Uh, it was wonderful, and I had a five-year contract. Well, toward the end of the five years, he started his downcast. And he wanted to get rid of everything, and he sold the farm to an oil man. And he sold it for way less than it was worth, and his friends attacked him about selling it, giving it away, you know. So the guy had it in escrow, and he was going to keep me with the farm that he bought. And that was nice. So it bothered uh, the primary man that bought the farm. It bothered him a lot that he was giving it away and he decided to make a change. And he paid the lady in the escrow office a lot of money and apparently built her a house in Canada where she came from originally. And then they came to me and said, you're the only one that knows this place was sold and we can make it easy on you. We can make it very tough on you, but you have to go to court and you have to say there was no sale. There was no sale here at all. They've taken all the money out of the escrow and sent it back to his account in Beverly Hills. And um, there was no, no sale. We're going to try to go on like we were before. And I said, get out of here. You can't. Have me go and lie in court, raise my hand and swear to tell the truth and and lie about it. You can't do it. Everybody will know I'm lying and and I won't do it. And and I haven't done anything wrong, so you can't make it that tough on me. Well, how wrong I was. They arrested me. They slammed me in solitary confinement. They chained me to a a murderer um, because I wouldn't sign uh, a guilty plea. And a man came to the courthouse in Santa Barbara, California, the day after I was arrested with $50,000 in a paper bag. That was my bail. That was a bail for murderers and people that were very dangerous. So
1: why were you arrested? What was the grounds?
0: Well, they, they called the grounds that I stole $2 million because the young attorney that took over his case against me, to make it tough on me, uh, said that building an eight million dollar thoroughbred farm, they have a lot of contractors. And I promise you that some of the contractors, in order to get the work to do, they paid him under the table. It happens all the time. And if we go back through these books, we will find it. Arthur Anderson was the bookkeeping uh, uh, company that did this, And they couldn't find a penny because there was no penny. I didn't know how to steal anything. I had a salary for him, and that was the end of it. So they arrested me. They not only arrested me, but when I got the $50,000 bail, they brought me here to this house where a lot of friends had shown up. Friends of the guy that put up the $50,000 showed up to say, We'll help you. We know this guy, and we know his problems with bipolar disease. And they put guards all around the place. And they literally came the first night with Pat and the children asleep and slammed me down outside the house here and put a shotgun at the back of my head and said, sign this guilty plea. And I wouldn't sign it. First miracle that we're going to talk about was that a guy came in about 50 miles an hour and he was part of the guards that were here, the, 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 the team they put in to secure the place. And he had gone to school with Pat and I. He'd gone to high school with Pat and myself. And he put a rifle on these people and drove them off of me. They weren't going to kill me. I know now. But I promise you, when a shotgun is loaded and you hear it being loaded and put at the back of your head with three men holding you on the ground, you don't think that they can't kill you. But they couldn't kill me because they never could have got away with it at all. I was an arrested man. I was un- in being charged of stealing $2 million.
1: Yeah, you're not thinking about that, though, when you're on the ground. No, with the you're, your
0: you're not. I promise you, you're not. But we moved out the next day, everything, horses, equipment, everything in the house. We moved out to a wonderful ladies farm across the road over there that knew the situation and moved us in. But the kids had to be sent to Northern California because they were under uh, a challenge that they were going to take it out on our kids if we didn't sign that we were guilty. Eight months later, they had a trial, they elected the jury, and they brought a judge out of retirement called C. Douglas Smith. And this judge sat there during the process of all this, reading the record of what they put together to charge me with stealing $2 million. And after the jury was uh, placed in the jury box, the judge announced that there was going to be a recess, and he said, I want both sides in my chambers. And he took us in there, and he sat at this long table. I'll never forget it. For as long as I live, I'll never forget. I I was willing to die to save my family, if that's what was necessary. And I thought, they're going to, they can do this. They're going to put me in jail. I'm going to be in jail for years, probably. And the judge said, gentlemen, I have read all these documents. And I'm not going to let the citizens of California pay for this trial. It's a sham trial. I remember those words so well. I was sitting right where you're sitting now. uh, And he was sitting where I'm sitting. It's a sham trial. There's no case here. And we're going to sit here today until this case is settled. And you, the accusers, you figure out what you're going to do for this man to make it fair. And when he smiles, I'm going to bang this gavel. And this case is finished. This case is over. That, Are you
1: thinking, don't smile, don't smile, don't smile?
0: <laughs> my, my attorney was saying, don't smile, don't <laughs> smile, don't smile. <laughs> and and um, when they got to a position where I could see that we could own this farm, we back in the house, um, we, we, we got a lot of money back that, it, that was owed to us for all of this. Because they put the cash up I mean they were eight months um challenging me, threatening my family, following us on the road we We didn't even have a car we had friends gave us a car to drive, and I had to smile and we're in this house, we were in this house in very short order after the time that the case was settled. We lived in a little house down at the bottom for a while, um, but we saw the way to work ourselves with the agreements that were made back into owning everything. So we ultimately owned what they now say is about a $12 million farm. And this house alone is uh, probably over $5 million in value. And, you know, I I don't, don't think that I ever would have made that kind of money had that had not happened. So then call it the best thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. Right. But I don't recommend it for anybody (laughs) because it was a terrible thing to go through. You know, two months after the settlement, we got a phone call from the gentleman who wasn't a gentleman. And he said, I want to come back and I want to meet you and Pat in this room. I'm just thinking of it right now. In this room, your little living room, it's called. I want to meet you in the little living room and apologize to you for what I've done to you. And Pat looked at me and said, I'm not going close to this place when he's here. I'm going to go with the kids up to Northern California where they were before. And you can sit here and listen to him apologize if you want. And I did. I did. Um, Did I feel sorry for him? I could never reach into myself and feel sorry for him. What he did was incredibly horrible. To the family, certainly to me, but to Pat. Imagine Pat going through that being the second person in this family, kind of, if you will, she's not, to me, the second person. She's the first person. But I didn't mind sitting there and hearing him apologize and telling me that he had no chance to make a decision otherwise, that he hired a young attorney that saw an opportunity to really become famous. And he was convinced, that young attorney, that they could find... Money that I took, and it might not be $2 million. $2 million? Yeah, $2 million. Might not be $2 million. But enough that it was a um, serious crime. Uh, not a misdemeanor. But a, what do you call the other crime? Felony. A felony. And all they needed was, I don't know... 20,000 or something, i some number to make it a felony. Well, they were way over that, you know. But I didn't take a penny. Lo and behold, was I, Sister Agnes Patricia, <laughs> thank you so much for causing me to be an honest person because uh, I, I hadn't taken a cent. What happened, though? I pled guilty to a crime. Think about that. The man came to me at the time, they said they could make it tough on me, and he asked me to shoot five horses. I could name them for you. The kids know about this, and Pat knew about it. He wanted them shot because they embarrassed him. And I'm not going to kill any horses, I'm not going to shoot any horses like that. So I took them away, and I gave them to people that could use them, and I took out of my pocket their book value, and I put it into the books, thinking that would mean I didn't commit a crime. But in fact, when you're a member of a uh, a corporation and you're not the head of the corporation, if you take something for yourself, even at the book value, you have to let the president of the corporation know what you're doing. You can't hide it away. And I wasn't going to shoot the horses. So I did that. So I had to plead guilty to a misdemeanor, which meant nothing. The horses were in better, well, they were in far better shape at the end than the, than if I'd have shot them, that's for sure. So it's a, it's a crazy story that someday a movie should be made about this life I've led because theres that's a miracle all in its own. And there's been miracle after miracle in my life that should be shown in a in a movie type thing where you can do the have somebody play the parts and, and do the you? scenes. Oh I don't know who would do me. I, I I I don't know and I don't know if they'll ever do a movie. They probably won't. But I know my life story. And I know the challenges, I know the victories and the defeats. And um this one was a victory in the end, but felt like a defeat for a large part of the time involved. Um, it's, it's an amazing set of circumstances um, that just keep going on in, in my life, and it's I think it's a life that was um, really created by Sister Agnes Patricia, who saw the violence that my father Reeked upon me on the growing up stages, and she was talking of my time between 4 and 14 kind of thing. Yeah, 4 and 14, let's say. And uh, it was a horrible uh, life to live at that time with dreadful violence that I came to think was what all children went through. Uh, Remember that I was isolated from other kids quite a bit because... Uh, from 1939 at the age of four until 1949 at the age of 14, from four to 14, I was a stunt child for the movies that were made totally against the law. They couldn't have a child do what I was doing. I didn't know it was against the law. But my father set it up so that they put armed guards around to keep people away so they didn't know what they were doing, and I did these stunts that were very dangerous stunts. Fortunately, I was never hurt in a stunt that I did for the movies to a tenth of what I was hurt by his violence, my father's violence. But that 39 to 49, the weekends were horse shows and competition, and I was demanded from to win everything sometimes I did things that were not very honest to win but I was to win or be beaten and so I won for instance I'll tell you a quick little story about musical chairs a funny thing that they put in most junior horse shows and I was to be the all-around champion of the junior horse show And points were given for the musical chairs.
1: And just so you know, this is important because your father has a riding school. And that's how he makes his living is teaching lessons. And if his son wins everything, makes sense the riding school is going to be full.
0: All the parents send their kids to his school. That was, I didn't know it at the time, but that was the whole design.
1: But I think what you did in this musical chairs was actually
2: smart. He was her first love, the one that started it all. He taught her how to master the posting trot and navigate her first hunter course. They spent hours together exploring the trails and hanging out in the barn. His name was doodled on every page in her school notebook. His coat gleamed in the sun as he met her at the gate each day, snuffling for a treat. From the first time she saw him poking his head out of the stall, To the last time she patted him goodbye, he was, and always will be, her everything. This love story is brought to you by Nalox Advanced, providing complete support for a healthy digestive tract, which reduces the risk of colic and digestive upset. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974. Or visit kppusa.com to order today.
1: So tell everybody what you did.
2: Do you, have you heard the
0: story? You've
1: told me that. I, oh, uh...
0: I told you about it already. Well, I had a horse called Brownie, and Brownie would learn anything from me. And phew, we lived like brothers together. And uh, he was beaten by my father. And I, I watched blood running out of his hind legs from tying ropes around his hind legs until there was a pool of blood there that he was standing in. And um, Ginger was my first horse, Brownie my second, and, and I loved both of them like family. And Brownie would learn anything from me. And what he learned was to canter almost in place. canter only, and in the musical chairs you have to keep cantering. Well, the other kids are going fast, aren't they? And uh, you have to keep cantering along. And you can't pass people in front of you so you canter about the same speed well brownie would canter at uh, two miles an hour you know very slow canter and you could carry a rope that was like 15 feet long so he would canter very slowly all the kids would stack up behind him trying to canter and uh, when the music stopped all the chairs are open to me in front (laughs) so i would get off And I won every single, undefeated, every single musical chair as I went in. And uh, they would tell me, go faster, go faster. He doesn't go any faster, you know? (laughs) So that's kind of cheating, really. (laughs) And then when there's only two left, two kids left, they put one chair down at the end of the riding hall or the arena. And the two have to race down and sit down on the chair. And I would try to manage to be on the left side all the time. And I generally did um get on the left side. But anyway, if I got on the right side, I could get off the right. But when I got off, remember 15, 20 foot rope, I just hold the end of the rope and I would get down after running. And the other person, let's say, is running right alongside of me. And we're going to, it's going to be a tie. But when I got off, Brownie would go away from my body, right out sideways like that. And he would wipe out the other horse, (laughs) run over the kid, and (laughs) and the chair is there for me to sit down in. That's just one quick story of of how I um, won everything that uh, was on offer. Um, If they had a, a perpetual trophy, generally those perpetual trophies were if you win them three years in a row, you get to keep it. And I have perpetual trophies with my name on them three years in a row. But remember. That I wasn't any genius, nor was I a good athlete or anything like that. I was riding all day, every day, nine horses, eight horses, seven horses, while other kids were riding for a half an hour on Saturday afternoon or something like that. And so winning wasn't any great thing for me, but it kept my father from me. I remember being beaten up, though, on days when I was the champion, because I did something that he didn't like. I remember being beaten in a, a horse van, six-horse van, on a day when I was massively in front and there was one contest left. And I had done something that he told me not to do. I think it was the use of some equipment that he told me not to use or something. And he decided to beat me up in there. And I went to the last competition of that day, with blood running out of me from several areas, with my mother there trying to put tape on me and and wanting to kill my father for what he was doing. But she was afraid to try to kill my father for what he was doing. It's a a funny life that I lived, and um, I don't recommend it to anybody. I certainly didn't recommend it to my own children.
1: Well, and and that's, I think, what the miracle of what has happened is that you were able to break that cycle and not be a violent person in, in raising children and or raising horses. And I think you know, one of the things that you did besides, you know, watch your dad rope these horses and there's pictures of your dad that he wrote a book about (laughs) this violent horse training and like celebrates it, you know? So we've all seen, I've seen those pictures and it is a book. Uh, and what you did was you turned it around, but I wanted to touch on the language of the horse because you also had a job where you went out into the wild horse world and you were supposed to bring horses to the Salinas Wild Horse Rodeo. How old were you when you started noticing how horses communicate with each other? And how, how, how did that whole thing happen?
0: Okay, it was 1946. So I was um, 11 years old. And that's the end of the Second World War, and we're going to have the first rodeo after the war, and we need 150 mustangs for the wild horse race. And um, Doctor Edmund J. Leach was the president of the Rodeo Association.
1: And there's no BLM. You just go out there, and you just almost like a rustler.
0: There's no BLM, um, but they they had called ranchers that had given them agreements that they could come on and, and uh, gather so many Mustangs from ranches around Elko, Nevada, and the little towns, uh, Duckwater and little towns around there. Um, and, uh, you know, an 11-year-old kid uh, wasn't really the plan, but Dr. Leach said, no, I'm the president and he gets to go. My mother didn't want me to go, and my father didn't want me to go at all. But I got to go because of Dr. Leach. And um, the first year, in 1946, I I didn't do much but observe what the other guys were doing. And I could ride well, so I was helping herd the horses into these V's and capture them in a little thing and load them into the truck. And off they go, 150 head, uh, going to the green corrals in the... Rodeo grounds of Salinas, California. And after they arrived in the corrals there uh, from the trucks, then I was put in charge of taking care of them, feeding them, seeing to it that the water trough was clean and doing a lot of uh, things that of the everyday kind of uh, things that I, uh, that I did. Um, and then the second year, asking to go two weeks before the other team went, with one truck and one guy because I needed an adult with me and had Brownie and Oriole with me um, that I could go out because I wanted to learn about these horses. I I wanted to be a part of their life so that I could get to understand more about how they thought and what they did.
1: So... You famously gentled a Mustang shy boy. It's a documentary. It's a book shy boy who is bless his heart. Still hanging out here at flag is up. He looks amazing. Um, And you decided to do that. Like, let's not just do it. Let's like get serious about it. And I'm going to just have camera crews and the BBC document all of this. I mean, so that was like your big idea. And you take it to fruition and here you are and you've got this horse picked out that you're supposed to gentle and have him accept his first rider and all this. Were you ever afraid that you were going to fail?
0: Not except for three or four times every hour. (laughs) I I always, I always feared. You see, I, the way it actually happened was I had already written a book and the queen wanted that book. And she sent the BBC to see if they could do some documentary about the book that would help it sell, um, having to do with nonviolent training. And I sat down with a guy called John Groom, if you can believe that. Groom, just like he's a groom. Um, and he said, is there something you haven't done that you would like to do a documentary on and have the world learn about it? And we were sitting in one of the arenas in, in England then. It was uh, 19, uh, 1996 or so. And the book is out on the shelves, I think. Anyway, I said, you know, actually, I'm sitting here thinking about it. And I don't, re- I don't recall anything that I haven't done, that I wish I'd done. But I, what I have re- do recall is that there was a time when I said I wanted to do a Mustang join-up in the wild. No 20th century facilities, just out there. with, the, And I could go three weeks ahead of the team. Um, by this time, I was 15. And, uh, you know, I was a man by this time, at 15. And I want to do this thing where I just go out and part off a Mustang on the desert wide, cause him to accept me and keep his pride That's what I, that was my theme. And uh, so I went up there three weeks ahead, and uh, I did that at 15. I'm sitting there with this guy, and I said, there is something I did do, because when I came home riding this horse, I came back to the ranch riding this horse, leading Brownie and Ginger, no, sorry, Brownie and Oriole, leading them back And the guys all came out of the bunkhouse and out of the house there and said, what are you talking about? You are such a liar. That wasn't a wild horse. Somebody already broke this horse and turned him loose. And you just found a horse that was already broke. You can't take a Mustang and do that. So nobody believed it. And my father tried to beat the hell out of me at 15. He couldn't really do that at that time. That was one of the benches of our life, the, the turning points of our life. But there was this little Mustang. I call him a no-name Mustang because he never got a name. And my father shot him, uh, the horse that I had helped and ridden back to the camp. And the guy says, you think you could do it again? Well, what was I? I was uh, 60 years old. I had had back surgeries and all these broken bones from my father. And, and could I do it again? I think I can, you know. So I didn't tell him about all the doubts in my mind. I said, I think I can. And uh, I had to go to White City in London for a lady um, that I've forgotten the name of right now, but um, she was in charge of the budgets and stuff. And she said, what do you think it'll cost to do this? I'm telling you, how many days and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, it came down to, I think I can do it in three days. And she came down to the fact that it's going to cost them about 80,000 pounds. It was about $120,000. And she said, what are the odds that you can make this work? And I didn't know what to say. I sat there for maybe two or three minutes thinking, I don't want to make it too small, but I don't want to make it too big either. I said 80%. The odds are 80%. And she said, "Ooh." let's do it. <laughs> and if and that's one of the high points of my life because I came home and the BBC sent their team over to adopt the mustangs that three of them that we had a chance to choose which one to do because it turned out that they adopted them out of the 3-year-old pen that the BLM had. Now we're up to the BLM because we had to do it all by their standards. But anyway, um there's three horses there from the three-year-old pen, and they wanted a three-year-old, and I wanted a three-year-old. And one was four, and one was two, and Shy Boy was three. So he, he was the one they chose to do. Um, the other two were put back out in the wild, uh, as far as I remember. But Shy Boy came home with me, and the BBC had actually adopted him, so they gave him to me, and he's in his 29th year of life right now. Um, He's just a couple of hundred yards from us down here. And Mustangs do not live to be 29 years of age. There is no chance for them to do that because they're full of internal parasites for the first three years of their life if they were captured at It's like when
1: people say Mustangs don't need to get their teeth floated. I'm like, yeah, and they die at seven.
0: Yeah, they they die in their early teens mostly. And 15, 16 is an ancient Mustang. And he's 29, and we did take care of him, I promise you that, but nothing really special. He had his care taken of him, and um, he nickers to me every time I go to the stable. He, I mean, that's what they do. They remember everything in their life, and he remembers that I was first a very scary thing, and then I was trusted, and I earned that trust. And uh, he went all over the United States with us and Canada. Um, I just love him like uh, a member well, of the family.
1: Yes, clearly, because he has been in this house multiple times. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes.
1: I remember that. <laughs> well, we had some people ask some some questions more personal than training, which is kind of the avenue I wanted to take with this sit down. Um, and so, if you don't mind, if I could go over a few questions that some of our listeners no problem wanted to ask. Okay, a famous horse, dead or alive, in history, in the present, that you wish you could have ridden or worked with.
0: Well, that's pretty easy. Um... And I assume you mean ones that I never did work with or get to know. But Secretariat was a horse that had a massive load of positive thigmotaxis connected with him, which meant that he had an intense desire to go into pain rather than away from pain. And whether people know it or not, uh, Secretariat... When he went in the starting stalls and the two rails in there were along his sides, he would fight those rails and lean over uh, 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 and literally lose 15 or 20 links.
1: Which is described actually in the movie where they talk about Secretary would sit back in the starting gates and laser on. But it wasn't that he was lazy. It was that he felt that pressure and went into that pressure.
0: Yeah, they never understood. I, I talked to the trainer several times. And he didn't want to hear from me at all. And I don't blame him for that. He's training the number one horse in the, in the world. And oh, I, sure. I could have helped him. But um, he would lose 10, 15, 20 lengths at the beginning of each race. But if you go back and watch the video, there were only five horses, I think, in the third race of the Triple Crown, Belmont. the Belmont. And he got permission to go in last. And the starter was told, I'm told now, that if the other horses are standing good, while he's still coming in, you punch the button. And that's what happened. And if you watch the video, you can see that they immediately start the race before he's actually had the back gate closed on him and and closed in there. And he wins the race by 70 links or something like that. Um, it was an incredible...
1: 31?
0: 31 lengths. Uh, 31 right, 31 links. Links. Yeah, yeah uh, it was an incredible race. But the instant that they started the race, I knew he, w- he had to be the winner because he didn't lose his 10 to 15. And he came here to California and got beat. Uh, he was beaten here in California. The Wood. In
1: the, uh, wood uh, Memorial.
0: W- was that it? Um, he lost the wood. Anyway, uh, he lost so much, he just couldn't make it up in the one race that he lost. But um, uh, thigmotaxis is, a, is an area very, very important in my training in that horses go into pain and pressure instead of away from it. And people, humans, go away from pain, that's for sure, except in our mouth where the baby bites down on a rubber ring uh, that's stigmotoxic. Uh, they want to go into the pain. It feels better when they go into the pain. But the rest of us, we go away from it. Uh, so as you, as you come along here, you wonder, why in the world did Mother Nature make the horses go into the pain so they could go into the dog and not get their stomach ripped out and then kick him in the head? And when he opened his mouth to to save his life, then the horse could bolt away. So they will first go into pressure,
1: it's, into pain. It's one of the first things that I teach horses is if you take them into, I use cross ties. You take the horse into the cross ties and you get them set up and eventually you get to where you can cross tie them. But even in there, when you go to push, you need to move around your horse and you go to push them over. The horses demonstrate thigmotaxis so quickly. And I use this example all the time is that you go to push your horse at the cross ties. What does it do? It leans back into you. And so what our job as trainers is to cause them to want to go away from the pressure. And I do tell people about your thing with the dogs what if a dog or a coyote or a wolf were to grab that belly where I'm pushing and they went away from it. Then they're eviscerated.
0: The, the intestines arrive outside the body, and so it's body. just
1: genetic DNA encoded yeah. to like make them go into pressure. And all of what we do with training horses is, you pick up that lead line, you pull, and they have to come off of the pressure. Put your leg on, squeeze them, ask them to go forward. When they go forward, take your leg off. You know. So anyway, yeah. I know that's it. So yeah, you could have you could have made Secretariat even better, huh?
0: Well, I could have stopped. I think I could have stopped Secretariat if I'd have known how to do it at the time. I really didn't know how to do it at the time, except to use time to teach them to go off the pressure. I did that. But now I've developed a thing called the top pole, training off-pressure pole, where you push their side, and as soon as they step away, you take the pole away, and you go to both sides. The Queen had a filly that was terribly uh, beset by this problem, and I developed this pole and it's all cushioned, and you push on the flank, and they come into it, and you can get kicked, so you want the head to come toward you. But as soon as they learn to go away, you take the pole away. Go the other side, back and forth. And um, now, at 12 months, you can teach the baby how to go off pressure, and when you first start riding them, they'll go off your leg. It's not that difficult to teach, but we're 6,000 years learning Me along with you, six thousand years learning that there's an easy way to teach them to come off the pressure. I I never knew that uh, until way late in my career. And yes, I could have helped secretariat, but it would have taken me far more time than it would take today Mm -hmm. because of what I've learned in the last six or seven years.
1: So. What would you say one of your favorite, and and I got asked this a while ago, and I could not come up with anything. Uh, What is your favorite non-horse-related activity?
0: Uh, My favorite non-horse-related activity is dry fly fishing. Okay. And I have done that in several countries. And, um, yeah, catching a fish is... Painful, I guess, to the fish, but I released most of them. But I, I don't, I, I eat meat and I eat fish too. And so I think God put them here for us to catch. And to put a dry fly on top of the water and have them rise to it um, takes a lot of talent. You have to work at it. I'm not as good as a lot of people are, but I love to have the challenge of having one believe that that's a real. Sporting. Insect up there and that they come and get him. And uh, I I found that New Zealand was one of the fantastic places to do that.
1: And that leads to my next question. That might be the answer. What is the favorite place in all of your travels?
0: Yeah, I think New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand is still what America was in the early days and the beautiful surroundings of mountains, of snow caps and rivers and of not so many people and uh that the people there are still very natural and they they try to live with one another agreeing with one another and and uh modulating their efforts in, in instead of being vicious to one another like so many countries are
1: so much fun hearing from Monty Roberts. And here in some different parts of his life, we are actually going to have part two of this episode with Jamie and Monty next Friday. So tune again, tune in again next week. This is Coach Jen. We'll see you around.